Hey everyone, my name's Hank, Digital Pastor here at the Foundry Church. We just want to say thank you for tuning in to our sermon series podcast. We're an awesome series now where we are exploring gospel wisdom in a new series that we're calling Uncommon. We really hope that this time blesses you and that you have an awesome time listening in and checking in with us here in Central Florida. If you're looking for a church family or if you're a part of our church family already, we would love to connect with you more online. You can head to our website, www.thefoundry.org. That's www.thefoundry.org. Or you can find us on social media, specifically our Facebook page and our Facebook group are great ways to get connected with us. So we're going to hand it off now to Seth as we jump in to today's message in our series, Uncommon. Thanks for listening. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the Foundry. Whether you're joining us in person or in the World Wide Webs, we are so very glad that you're here. My name is Seth. And this is the Foundry, where we are all about a better you and a better world. So we, yeah, we are in week uh, four of our series called Uncommon. We'll, we've got this week and next week. The week after that, we begin our Christmas series called The Everywhere of Christmas, which I'm really excited about. I hope that you will make plans to be here. Now, last week, we talked about something important, I'm sure. Uh, the generous landowner, that's what we talked about, and how uh, the, the generous landowner was giving all the workers the same, and apparently this is what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. So this week, we're going to move on. We're going to talk about something that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, where he talks about this thing called the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah. Now, before we get to Matthew chapter 12 and the sign of Jonah, I want to look at a few things that Jesus is up to leading up to that, okay? So that's Matthew chapter 12. If you back up to like Matthew chapter 8 and and run through a couple of these chapters, you see that Jesus was, was actually really busy. So uh, he's, he goes up on, this, uh, on the mount to do the Sermon on the Mount. You're familiar with this. At the end of chapter seven, he's done. Chapter eight, he starts to come down the mountain. He's done preaching, and then he immediately runs into a paralyzed man who says, can you heal me? Look at this. Chapter eight, verse three. Uh, Jesus rescued, out, uh, reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. Jesus asked if he was willing. That's the pretext of that. He said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So that's Matthew 8, chapter 3. Then in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 5, Jesus heals the centurion's servant who was paralyzed. After this, in verse 14, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and we're not told if Peter was happy about this, Thanks. In verse 16, uh, we see this. Uh, after he leaves Peter's house, after healing his mother-in-law, verse 16, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. He drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. After verse 16 comes verse 27, where you see Jesus calming the storms. Uh, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. After this, verse 28, Jesus heals not one but two demon-possessed men. That's just chapter 8. 
right? He's fairly busy. It continues in chapter 9. He heals, in verse 1, a paralyzed man. In verse 20, he heals the sick woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. In verse 23, he brings a dead girl back to life. Then in verse 29, he restores the sight of two more blind guys. This is what it says. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. So in these two chapters alone, we have like 10 specific miracles, 10 healings, 10 signs, and we see the miracle of the calming of the waves and the storm, and this doesn't include all of the demon possession healing and all the mobs of sick people that he was also healing. So Jesus, is, in these two chapters, has been a, a pretty busy dude. Like he's passing out miracles like Oprah's passing out cars, right? And you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. Everybody gets cars. He's slinging this stuff all around. But did you notice how in a couple of these passages he says something really interesting? What he says in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 4, and chapter 9, verse 30. He says, uh, then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded. Chapter 9, verse 30, and their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. So he performs these miracles, these incredible miracles, and then he says in these couple situations, like, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Why wouldn't he want people to know what he was up to? Like, if you're the son of God and, like, your whole mission is to come and, like, save the world and, and you're trying to get people to believe in you so that they can be rescued, so that they can be saved, so that they can be redeemed, and you really do want everyone to be saved and rescued and redeemed, why would you want to keep this a secret? Why wouldn't you want everyone to know about this? This is terrible marketing, right? This is, he's got a great product. He's got a great message. Atrocious marketing, Maybe what Jesus knows about us is something more than we know or care to acknowledge about ourselves. Maybe he knows a little bit about how we work, how we think, how we function, how we operate. I think we see what Jesus knows about us in chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Right? So, it's like he's saying, I've done all this stuff for you, and you didn't really respond. Like, what's the old saying? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I played the music, and you didn't dance. It's almost like he understands that these miracles and these signs, like, yeah, yeah, they're, they're nice. They're, 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 they're nice for a moment, but in the end, they don't really have a ton of value. Now, chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So you have these 10 uh, miraculous healings, these things. You have the, the, the calming of the storm, the, the, the talking to the winds and the waves. You have the many who were healed of demon possession. You have the many sick people who people kept bringing to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the teacher of the law say what to him? Hey, uh, we want to see a sign from you. First of all, really? Like, have you had your head in the sand? Like, what, what, what have I been doing? Like, 
Did you, have you not been paying attention at all like, to what's happening? I've been slinging miracles all around this place, slinging signs. Did that not impress you? What more do you want from me? Second of all, it's like uh, you've kind of missed the point, which kind of reminds us of chapter 11 where he says, well, I played the pipe and you didn't dance and we sang the dirge, but you, you, didn't, you didn't sing. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law want to see a sign. Why? Well, because they're looking for Jesus to prove himself to them. A sign is a way for Jesus to validate himself. A sign, performing a miracle, is a way for him to show them that he is legitimate. They're asking for Jesus to keep playing the proving and earning game, which we now know after the past couple of weeks, like, he, he's not doing this, is he? He's not playing the game. So how does he respond to this highly respected group of people, to this group of people who are on the upper echelon of the social hierarchy, to this group of people who are the religious elite? How does he respond to those guys? He says, only the wicked ask for a sign. This is like Jesus is taking some shots here, right? He's coming in hot on this one. Oh, you guys, you religious folks that think you're so uppity and you got your nose in the air? Only the wicked ask for a sign. He says, you want a sign? The only sign I'm giving you is the sign of Jonah. So what is the sign of Jonah? Well, Matthew 12, verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign of Jonah is what? The sign of Jonah is essentially death. So the religious people say, give us a sign, and Jesus says, the only sign I'm giving you is death. Because what he knows, what he's seen, what he knows about us, is that these miracles and these signs, yeah, they're good. They're good for a moment. They're nice. They're wonderful. It makes us feel good. But there's also a bit of a downside, because then it puts the focus on the wrong things. And then it creates like this endless yearning for just another one. It's like if you give a mouse a cookie, isn't it? If you give a mouse a cookie, he'll ask for a glass of milk. If you give a moose a muffin, right? They'll just, if you give them this thing, then they'll want that thing. And then if you give them that thing, they'll want just one more thing. We've already seen how Jesus has been performing all kinds of signs and miracles. We, like all of chapter eight and chapter nine, he's been doing all this leading up to this point, And then what do they do? They ask for a sign. Keep performing. Keep dancing. Keep proving yourself. You see, you can, you can perform all kinds of signs and miracles, and they may be a wonderful thing. And it's incredible that Jesus helped the, the lame, that he healed the lame, that he, that he restored the sight to the blind, that, that he cured the leper. It's amazing that he fed the 5,000. It's amazing that he brought Lazarus back from the dead, that he brought the, the, the young girl back from the dead. Those are all great things, and they provide this momentary relief. But tomorrow, the 5,000 will be hungry again. And eventually, Lazarus and the young girl will die again. And maybe even the lepers who he healed may catch some sort of other disease, right? It's a nice thing. It's a temporary thing. It's not this long-term lasting solution. Now, just a bit of a side note why we're here. If you've ever found yourself in a position where you're praying for some sort of miracle, where you're praying for some sort of healing, some sort of divine intervention in a particular situa situation, and you're using your expectation 
you're using your, ex, you're, you're using your expectation that God should fix the situation as a way to validate your faith in some sort of way. Can I lovingly and gently say to you that maybe that's not the best idea? Because the 5,000 that Jesus fed eventually were hungry. Lazarus and the young girl, they eventually died again. So even if God does intervene into the situation, it's really just a temporary fix, right? So don't allow the healing or the not healing in a particular situation to determine your understanding of God's love for you or for them. Because the thing God was up to through Jesus was so much bigger than the temporary fix of the thing in the here and now. The miracle is nice, but it's really just kind of a Band-Aid, isn't it? Yeah, so this is also the problem with superheroes. It's a good transition. This is the problem with superheroes, isn't it? If you think about what superheroes do, they do a lot of good, they save a lot of people, they catch a lot of bad guys, but yet there's still always a need for another superhero. Like, like, if Superman was really that super, we wouldn't have needed Batman. Do you know what I'm saying? And think about it. Like, if you really think about it, if Superman was really that super, he would have prevented Bruce Wayne's parents from getting murdered in the alley, which means you wouldn't have Bruce Wayne because then he, or you wouldn't have Batman because Bruce Wayne wouldn't have had this, like, tragic dark side, and then he wouldn't have this need for revenge. If Superman was really that super, we wouldn't have Batman to begin with. Like, super, superheroes could do a lot, but... They can't fix the system that's creating the need for them to continue to fix things, right? It, it's a, it, this is also a bit, like, um, this is a bit like getting a raise or getting a compliment, uh, two things that we would all love to get, right? Think about it. Money's tight. Uh, you get a pay raise. It's awesome. You get this momentary reprieve. You get this temporary fix. Money's not tight anymore, but then what happens? What most people do is they increase their standard of living, and then now all of a sudden money's tight again. Well, it was good while it lasted. We're thinking about getting a compliment, right? You get a compliment, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. But then what about when they don't give you a compliment? For, it, it would be like, let's pretend. Let's pretend one week I gave a good sermon, okay? I know it's a stretch. We'll pretend like one week I gave a good sermon, and I walk out, and you say to me, Seth, that was an amazing sermon. Like, you, you really changed my life. And I'm like, oh, that, I really appreciate that. Thank you. So, you know, like all this, like, fake humility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and then the next week I get up and I give another sermon, and then we walk out, and then you don't say anything to me. And then I'm like, oh, I guess that one was awful. They just walked out. They didn't even say hi. They didn't even acknowledge. They didn't give me the compliment. They didn't... Right? Like that thing only lasts so long. The signs and miracles Jesus was performing were wonderful and they're beautiful and they did an incredible amount of good, but he understood things from a much larger perspective that was tomorrow the people will be hungry again and you'll be right back where you started. So if, if your worth and value depends on signs and miracles, if, if, you're, if you're depending on your performance for your worth, these things, they come and go, they're temporary. Superman saving is temporary. That raise is temporary. That compliment only goes so far and the next week you'll need another one. He'll have to save again. You'll have to get another raise. If my worth and value stems from the things I do, then I'm going to get wrapped up in trying to keep playing the game, trying to keep earning, and I will never find the peace and security that I'm looking for. 
It's, it's kind of like when I, when I first started preaching here, I don't, I don't know how long it had been, a couple of weeks, a couple of months or something, um, the people at, uh, the TV, at a TV station called and said, we want to interview you. You know, this, uh, Good Life 45, you know them? They called and they said, hey, we, we've been hearing great things. Like, we want to have you on the show, do an interview. We heard the church is doing cool stuff. I was like, yes, this is awesome. Like, moving on up. I've only been preaching for like a month and they're already hearing about me. I'm really making a name for myself. That's awesome. So I go do the interview and we have this little chit chat and it's great. And I tell my parents, and I tell my friends and, you know, like, a few people called, like, to check out the church, like when's your services? I'm like, man, we're moving on up already. I'm just getting started. Give me a couple years and it'll be awesome, right? And so it was this awesome thing I'm super pumped about. And then like the very next week, you'll never guess what they did. They had somebody else on the show. They had another preacher talking about how great he was, talking about how wonderful their church was, all the great things that that preacher was up to. And they just kind of, moved on. They just kind of moved on. And they never asked me back again. <laughs> Which I think is really funny. Like, not that I really care. Like, what's Good Life 45? It's a show for Christians. Is that what I'm doing? I don't think so. But anyways, so if I depend on their validation for what I'm doing, like, that only goes so far. If my worth and value is tied to me being able to perform if it's tied to signs in which I can prove myself, stuff comes and goes. So when the religious leader says to us, says to Jesus, give us a sign, he doesn't entertain them with some like David Blaine street magic or anything, pulling rabbits out of hats so that they can go, wow, that's amazing. Look how great you are. Oh, you are somebody. He says, the only sign I'm giving you is the sign of Jonah, the sign of death, which is I'm going to step into the pain I'm going to go into the darkness. I'm going to into the heart of the lostness. I'm going to step into the death, and then I'm going to come out of that on the other side. Right, think about what happens in, in the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah, I want you to take the good news to the people of Nineveh. Jonah runs in the opposite direction. Why? Because Nineveh is like the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians are like these terrible people. Everybody hated the Assyrians. They were enemies of Israel. And so God's saying, take my message of redemption and healing to the people you hate. Yeah, like, you're going to think twice about that, aren't you? I don't want to go over there to those people. They don't need to be saved or rescued, or even if they do, I don't want to give it to them, right? So he runs. What's he do? He gets on the boat. He found out it's Jonah's the one causing the problem. They throw him off the boat. He gets swallowed by the large fish. He's in the darkness for three days, which is this picture of death. He gets coughed up by the fish, and it's in the coughing up. It's in the laying on the beach in the fish slime throw up that he comes to this realization that this new life for him begins. It's in this moment that he goes to the enemies with the love of God. His new life starts on this other side. He's now free from all this. He's free from all the other stuff because he doesn't have to be afraid. He went through, into and through the belly of the fish. He's gone through the darkness and come out on the other side. And this is where the good stuff happens. If you think about your life, or think about some of the difficulties you've experienced in your life, some of the darkness you may have faced may be the very thing that changed you for the better. It, it may be the very thing that has caused you to grow. Think about some of the, the dark times for you. 
You know, when I think about my relationship with my wife, I know we've been through ups and downs. We've been through some, some tough situations, some of which like we both understood as a tough situation, some of which I was just the tough situation. <laughs> I remember when we were in Nashville, um, I, I didn't realize it, but I guess I was in a bit of a funk. It was like 10, 12 years ago, something like that. And, and I look back in that time and just think, oh, it was just a time. My wife looks back in that time. She's like, man, that was really tough for us. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize I was the tough situation. But it's these things, these ups and downs, these difficulties that we've gone through together that I think have made us stronger, that, that have helped us grow in our relationship. Right? Think about... Um, uh, like and when I think about even being here at the church several years ago, I was going through some dark times. It wasn't fun. It wasn't easy. But that time did a whole lot of molding and shaping of me. That time helped to shape and mold how I think of God, how I view the Bible, how I understand and approach my faith. You know, when I think about all the, like, the crazy like, trail running I've been doing the past couple years, <clears throat> I've realized a few things. Is that the further you run the harder it gets, <laughs> it's, it's an epiphany, it's an epiphany. You're welcome for that one if you didn't know it. The further you run, the harder it gets. But I've noticed that all these races kind of have like the same kind of like flow through them. They have this like trajectory, this arch, this path that they kind of take. You begin the race, it's really exciting. You're, there's a lot of anticipation, excitement. Then you get into the race a little bit and you get into a bit of a rhythm, right, and a pattern. You're just kind of doing your thing and you're, you're, you're going a couple hours into this, but you go a couple more hours into this stuff and then all of a sudden that anticipation, excitement wears off and that thing, that, that rhythm that you're getting into kind of becomes a burden and it becomes a bit difficult and then eventually you get to the am I going to die part of the race and you get into this and it's tough and everything hurts and you want to quit and you want to give up, but you keep, you keep going. And, and what I've noticed is that it's usually just after the am I going to die part that you find yourself getting awfully close to the finish line. And when you find yourself awfully close to the finish line, once you see that, all of a sudden things begin to change. And, and you, you, you get this like, this this deep thing, this reserve that you didn't know you have, and, and there's this, this burst of energy, and even though your body and your mind may be a bit tired, you're digging into this deeper thing that you weren't aware you had. And so you charge the finish line with all that you've got, and you step across that finish line, there's this flood of emotions of excitement and joy and laughter and tears. There's something very life-giving when you know you've gone through the difficulty and come out the other side. You have this new perspective on the whole thing, that thing that was so difficult, that I wanted to die part, that darkness, that in the belly of the whale part, those are the things that make crossing the finish line all the more sweet. There's a great line that I, I've learned in, in the running community, uh, a little phrase that people use. They say, um, embrace the suck. Embrace the suck, which is a great line, right? They make bumper stickers and stuff. They make t-shirts. Embrace the suck. Isn't this, this is the sign of Jonah, isn't it? You're into the darkness, into the belly of the whale. Embrace the suck because you know on the other side of that, there's going to be something better. This, there's this symbol of death, and it's out of this death that you will be reborn. Jesus says, you want another sign for me to prove myself. That's, that's what you think will fix this. You want me to keep performing for you in order to prove that I am the Christ, that I am Messiah, but that's not really going to fix anything. So what he says instead is, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah in which I am going to die. And when I die, I'm dying to all of that. 
I'm dying to the whole system that needed signs to prove value in the first place. So you have this incredible example of gospel wisdom, this Christ wisdom, this Christ crucified message, and yet we are so very deeply tied to the wisdom of this world, so deeply tied to the need to rank and label. We're so tied to this that even within the church, like what a lot, uh, happens a lot of times is religion takes this idea of the sign of Jonah and we say, oh, yeah, yeah, sign of Jonah means Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried, raised three days later. So you've got to believe that. And you either believe that or you don't, which means you're either in or you're out, which then essentially becomes just another way to label things, isn't it? <clears throat> but what Jesus is doing here He's not inviting us to a different way to rank and label things. He's not inviting us to a different way to keep score. He's inviting us into this whole new way of living. The sign of Jonah is the entrance. It's the doorway to this deeper truth of the universe, this deeper pattern of the created order, which is death, burial, and resurrection. You ever heard that little phrase where he says, whoever wants to lose, whoever wants to save his life will lose it? Or was to lose his life will save it. When you take this idea of the sign of Jonah and you boil it down to do you believe this happened or do you not, you're making this, this cognitive decision. You're keeping the whole thing, the whole idea of faith in your brain, in the level of the mind. Do you or don't you? And then based on what you think up here, you're either in or out. But what the sign of Jonah is saying is like this isn't a litmus test for your mind about what you believe. He's inviting us to align ourselves with this pattern that's found within the entirety of the created order, a pattern that Jesus Christ himself acted out through his death, burial, and resurrection, this pattern that is all around us everywhere, right? In the universe, like above our heads, the heavens, if you will, you have these stars, and the stars are born, and they live for a long time, and then eventually they die, and they explode into a bunch of little pieces, and then all those little pieces become the very things that new stars are born out of. There is death, and then there is new life. On the earth, we have this little thing, at least in, in other places, not so much in Florida, they're called seasons, where you have spring, and then summer, and then fall, and then winter. What happens in spring, there is new life. In summer, things are growing. In the fall, they begin to die. In winter, there is death. And then what comes after death in winter? Spring and new life. There is death and there is new life. In my garden, I plant seeds. The plants grow. They provide food for us. Eventually, they produce more seeds themselves. The plants die. Those seeds fall into the ground and they begin to produce new plants. There is death and then there is new life. Even within your body, around 300 million cells die within your body every minute. And 300 million cells are then replaced in your body every minute. So this thing is dying, and then out of that death comes this new life. So whether you're talking about stars, seasons, gardens, your body, Jesus on the cross, the pattern is death and resurrection. <clears throat> this is how the whole thing works. This is, the, this is also part of the importance of baptism. You were taken under the water. The old self dies. You were brought up out of this watery grave to new life. Even our practices align with this pattern of the created order. It's death and resurrection. To enter into the sign of Jonah is to align yourself with God's intended reality, to align yourself with how the whole universe operates. In, something, in order for something new to explode into existence, the old must die. New life comes from the death of the old. 
The Pharisees say, give us a sign. Prove yourself, validate yourself, earn your status. And Jesus is like, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not really doing that. I'm not playing that game. The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. The only thing I'm going to show you <clears throat> is that it's in the dying to all of that that new life can be found. You know, and think about it. You, we know this. We know this whether we know this or not. You already know this. This is like why we do New Year's resolutions. What's the basis of New Year's resolution? It's all about change, right? It's all about making a difference, <clears throat> making something change in your life. I've been living this particular way for this past year. I've been eating this way. I've been uh, using my relation, you know, living these relationships this way. I, I've been um, not taking care of my physical self this particular way for the past year, and it's not really working. I've noticed some problems with this. I, I want to make some changes. I need to do something new. How I was doing it wasn't that great, so what do I do? I have to kill off the old ways so that new habits and patterns can begin to form, so that they have room to grow. I have to die to the eating the junk food late at night so that I can lose a few extra pounds. I have to die to sitting around and not doing much so I can start to move and be more active, so I can have a new sense of health, so that my lungs and my heart and my body is feeling better. I have to die to putting my needs over the needs of my spouse or my partner or my whoever so that I can cultivate a deeper relationship with the person that I love. Or even with how we think. We all, over the course of time, develop these patterns of thought, how we see, how we view the world. We have these default systems that we cling to. So when something happens in our life, whether it's big or small, we automatically default to this particular pattern of thinking, right? Maybe you only see the negative. Maybe you only see the worst. Maybe you're jumping to conclusions. Maybe you're making some large assumptions about somebody and how they operate, whatever. So anytime you come across this, you immediately go right to these particular patterns. Um, a while back, I was talking with a guy, and uh, we were talking about the new Spider-Man with uh, the redhead kid, whatever his name is, and we were talking about it, and I said, yeah, I like this, it's pretty good, I like the new kid, he's pretty great, whatever, and he said, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good, he goes, but, but did you see these classrooms? And I said, what do you, what? What do you mean, did I see these classrooms? Well, did you see the kids that were in his classrooms? I, I guess, what do you mean? He's like, well, there was all different kinds of kids. I was like, Yeah. He's like, well, there was black kids and oriental kids and mixed kids and white kids and like all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, okay. He's like, well, don't you see? I'm like, obviously not. You're going to have to tell me what it is you're getting at here. And he's like, well, this is, this is the Hollywood liberals' way of tricking the country into thinking all of the country is like this. And I was like, wait, wait a second, what? That, that's what you got from the like three seconds of a scene in a classroom? That's what you picked up out of that? Like, he has... But he's got his perception, he's got his perspective, he's got his mind made up, and so he sees that and immediately knows that those people are the problem. And I said, well, but you know they're in New York, right? Like, have you ever been to New York? It's a really diverse place. Like, it could just be like a picture of New York, right? But we, we all have these things, we all have these particular patterns and these ways of seeing the world and these default responses, and a lot of times these patterns, the, these thought patterns are the very thing that's trapping us that's keeping us from seeing the bigger, better picture that Christ has, in, ha, has invited us into. The invitation is to die to all of that so that a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing the world, a kingdom way of seeing the world can be reborn. Doesn't Paul say in the book of Romans, 
Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yeah, maybe it's not just behavioral. Maybe it's mental as well. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can break out of this pattern. Put that to death so that you can begin to live with a kingdom mindset, so that you can experience this rebirth, this new life, this whole new way of seeing the world. And here's what's the, the thing about the sign of Jonah and stepping into the darkness and stepping into the death and aligning ourselves with the pattern of the created order. What makes this so difficult <clears throat> is that this isn't like a one-time thing. Right? It's not, oh, I was baptized and so I died to that and now I'm better and things are great. This is like a continual process. With the seasons, the death comes every year, doesn't it? And it's in that death that leads to spring that is new life. Jesus himself says, take up your cross daily. This is an ongoing process. Your cells, 300 million every minute are dying and then being replaced, which if you figure we just talked for like 30 minutes or so since I've been up here, 30 times 3 million, it's like 9 trillion times there has been death and new life that's happened in each of us. This is an ongoing process, but it's a process that continually leads to new life. The Pharisees say, give us a sign. Jesus says, the only sign I'll give you is the sign of Jonah. It's the sign of death. And it's out of this death that new life is found. It's your death that actually saves you. It's your death that actually brings life. So maybe the question for us today is, what do you need to die to? What do you need to die to so that something new can be brought into existence? Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go into our time of communion and contemplation. We're gonna give you some space today. We're gonna have our guys pass the communion trays, the bread and the juice that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. This beautiful meal that we're invited to this meal that reminds us of death and new life, this meal that reminds us of the love of God to send a son for us so that through his death we may live, we're gonna participate in that. But also, when you came in the door, you should have received a piece of paper. What we're gonna ask you to do is to take time here to write down some things that you need to die to. This is between you and God, you and the self, uh, when you do that, when you write this down, we're going to have you come up and up in the front corners here, there are these orange buckets. They have dirt in them and then they have dirt in front of them. We want you to take that thing that you need to die to, put it face down on the dirt and then bury it. Throw a scoop or two of dirt over it. Now, I'll, I'll give you the little tip, the little trick here, the little thing. The paper you have is seed paper. So it has like wildflower seeds in it. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take all the things that you're bearing and we're gonna put them in these. And then over the next couple of weeks, hopefully what we will begin to see is new life sprout from the things that you're bearing today. It's an illustration. So yeah, 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 yeah. So, so we're gonna give you time today. You don't have to rush. You have time. There is no order in which you have to do this. If you wanna get your communion and hold it, do some thinking and praying, write down your stuff, take however you want to do it, right? You've got time, you don't have to rush. I want you to think through, what do you need to die to? Die to the ego, die to the self, die to some pride, die to 
guilt, die to what is it? Die to playing the game? Die to keep proving yourself? Dying to the picture of who you think you need to be? Dying to the picture of uh, expectations that the world places on us that are ridiculous and silly? What is the thing you need to die to? Jesus invites us into the sign of Jonah. And it's in that death that there will be new life. In order for that new thing to grow, you have to make the space, which means something must die. So we give you space, think, pray, remember that Jesus has come to die for our sins, that through him we have this gift of new life. Write down a few things, place it in the buckets. If you didn't get a piece of paper and would like a piece of paper, can you raise your hand real quick and somebody will come to you? Um, if you want to participate and you don't have it and you don't want to raise your hand, there might be some sheets on the table. This is your space, this is your time. What do you need to die to? Also, lastly, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never been buried in the waters of baptism and would like to do that today, we're here, we'd love to talk with you about it. My man Hank will be in the back. I know it's Kit Moody here. Kit Moody would love to talk with you. She's right there, she'll go over to the cross eventually and wait there for a minute. Die to the self so that you may experience new life. Die to the self so that you may experience eternal life. Die to the self so that something new can grow up within you, so that new life can explode into your life. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you for this moment. <clears throat> God, we thank you for the sign of Jonah. It's difficult. It's uncommon. It's the opposite of so much of how we try to live our lives. God, give us the courage and the strength to die to the things we need to die to. God, we ask that in this moment you reveal what those things are, that you highlight those things in our, in our hearts and in our minds, point us in the right direction. God, we thank you for sending your son for us. God, we thank you for his wisdom, this alternative gospel wisdom. God, we thank you for the challenge. We thank you for the freedom. We thank you for the gift that is new life. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Hey, everybody. It's Hank one more time. Thanks again for tuning in and listening to this awesome series that we've been in, Uncommon. Our hope and our prayer is that you can listen to these messages and take away from them a new perspective on the truths and the ideas and the concepts that we talked about so that you can live your life in a little bit of a different way than you did before. We really are glad to have so many of you who participate and engage with us in our online platforms and through our online messages. Again, if you want to know, learn more about us and who we are as a church, and you want to learn more about what it means to reclaim God's intended reality for your life and creating a better you and a better world, head to our website. That's www.thefoundry.org. Again, that's www.thefoundry.org. Look for our awesome Facebook group as well, which is a great place to connect with people who are a part of our church, both here in Central Florida and abroad. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.